Hi everyone, I'm Tish Conlon. Here's another episode of Tish Talk. Today I have an amazing guest um, and he's got a great story. He's been with the Canadian Armed Forces, James Formosa. He did an undergrad in history and philosophy and then did a master's and started to see the Marxist Nihilist uh, influences in academia and moved into the Canadian Armed Forces. He served there and was a, did you say a troop commander um, at the end and was forced out in July 2022 for refusing a medical procedure. He has an incredible story. He's now with Veterans for Freedom. Welcome, James. How how are you today? Thanks, Tish. I'm doing very well. Um, it was it was a great it was a great opportunity, of course, to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, like you said, I was a troop commander. I was posted to the First Regiment, Royal Canadian Horse Artillery, out in uh, Shiloh, Manitoba. And yes, I was I was released under Category 5F, which says I'm unsuitable for further service. Although it was an honorable discharge, and it says that it was for reasons of due to personal and or domestic problems within my control, as well as because I am an excessive administrative burden to the Canadian Armed Forces. And we're gonna have a great chat today, I'm sure, as to why I became such an administrative burden for the folks at NDHQ in Ottawa. Absolutely. I listened to your story uh, last week. I know we both spoke at the same event and I'd love to hear it again. It was so amazing to hear what they did and for people to learn i don't know if the word is corruption but what is happening within our uh, military today unfortunately right so i i was aware as soon as as soon as uh, some big moves let's say were happening in terms of encouraging all of the soldiers under my command and in my regiment to uh to take these shots when they were were newly ro rolling out uh it was only strongly encouraged, but there was no top-down authoritative mandate or order that was would force people to not to take it regardless of their personal choices. But nevertheless, I could see the writing on the wall and I was already very concerned about it. So well over a year ago, before mandates even came to the Canadian Armed Forces, I was writing to my immediate chain of command. So uh, in that case, it would be if I was a troop commander, I was writing to my battery commander this is for folks listening. That's like the equivalent of like a platoon commander in the infantry talking to the company commander. So I have about 40 or 50 soldiers under my command and I'm talking to the guy in charge of three groups of us up to 100 or 150 of us telling him that I was concerned that we were setting ourselves up for failure as an institution, that we were about to institute policies that violated both the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Canadian Human Rights Act under uh, prohibited grounds for discrimination. And the response I received in those early on stages, well, first of all, I didn't receive much of a direct response at all because uh, it, frankly, I think the higher ups wanted to just kind of ignore my concerns, but they did put out a, a general response, you might say, that went out to everybody in my lower chain of command, letting know, letting all of the, the lower leadership know, uh, from their perspective anyway, that they considered it our responsibility as leaders to tell people that they need to or should get the shot, whether we agree with it or not, which of course didn't sit well with me. And I began my administrative burden process by writing lengthy responses to my own leadership, explaining 
using the military's own ethical doctrine, because as you mentioned, I have a master's in philosophy where I specialized in ethics. So there really never was any any chance for me. I had to explain how some of these new policies that have, again, only been out since the past year directly violate even some of the doctrinal ethical principles that are supposed to undergird and provide the foundation for action in the mm -hmm. Canadian Armed Forces. And that, that challenge I gave uh, with the first, the first code of uh, ethics for the Army, by, for instance, is we must respect the dignity of all persons. And when you tell people to willingly or knowingly violate the dictates of their own conscience, you're inherently dehumanizing them. So I could see, again, this is from the very beginning, we're already set upon a very dangerous precedent and a path. And nevertheless, the mandate still came through. I refused to compromise on my most deeply held sacred beliefs. And so I, I sought to work within the system and provide as cogent and articulate of a defense as I could of my personal beliefs, explaining the nature of them, why they ought to be respected and not just why they ought to be respected because of course that's a great benefit to me but because uh also speaking to this the more general idea that as an institution the canadian armed forces is beholden to certain ethical principles because yes. we do not want to go down certain dangerous paths that have already been tread in in the past in human history nevertheless um i experienced what now anywhere between 12 and 1300 of my peers are also going through this process at various stages either they're already retired or they're i'm still getting messages to this day from currently serving members who are being told that they are going to be punished for not for following a rule that even now is suspended so for my part i was released july 5th for refusing to follow cds directive 002 even though it was suspended or put on pause june 14th and now there's folks that are still in, you know, now over a month or now several months later, still being forced out for fault for not following a suspended mandate, which I would argue by virtue of its even it being suspended is indicative of the fact that it was not appropriate to institute it in the first place. Now, I wanted to ask you as well, because you mentioned that the um, everyone was told they had to only take one product as well. They were required to get the Moderna injection and uh, they weren't allowed to even choose which one they could they could get. Is that accurate as well? Yes. So this is something that I think even a lot of my either recently retired or currently serving peers may not be aware of this, but uh, at least as far as my regiment was concerned, um, at, because maybe by virtue of my leadership position that I did hold, we were told that uh, the Army, at least before this past Christmas, before December uh, and into January 2022, the contract that the Canadian Armed Forces had was exclusive to Moderna. And we were told, uh, according to, again, the, the plans from the very top, from the Chief of Defence Staff himself, we were ordered, you will go to your local, if you, so in my case, the base hospital in Shiloh, uh, you will go there, you will only receive your appointments and your injections from base hospitals and base nurses and doctors. And th there was no real concrete answer given other than some vague hand waving to this idea that you will be in a lot of trouble if you go to a 
civilian clinic or a civilian hospital or even just walk in at Shoppers Drug Mart once they started offering it there. Mm -hmm. And they did not change this. They didn't change this, uh, this directive on or the, the exclusive contract on Moderna until January 2022. And that was actually because uh, maybe in not in any small part to some of the efforts of folks like myself and many others, many other concerned uh, soldiers with, within various levels of the chain of command have been ringing alarm bells for the better part of a year and a half now saying, well, for instance, uh, last October, November timeframe was when I was again coming back to my chain of command saying, hey, sir, sirs and ma'ams, do you know that at that point, five or six European countries had banned Moderna for everyone under the age of 30 due to the prevalence of uh, heart issues, namely myocarditis. Yes. And most of my soldiers were between the ages of 20 to 25. And when I asked about this concern, I got mostly empty headed stares and no, no real coherent response, except for the fact, and this is my personal anecdote, but one of my soldiers like in my troop had his first appointment before Christmas. And that's where he received a shot of Moderna when he was calling the base hospital up in January because he saw that his appointment was pushed later on into the into the year he was inquiring as to why his appointment got pushed and the nurse at the base hospital admitted to him we, we can't give you your second appointment yet because we're waiting for a new shipment of Pfizer to come in because it's too dangerous to give you another shot of Moderna uh, her exact uh, words were we can't give it to you because it's uh, too dangerous and he was uh, around 22 years old oh unbelievable isn't it I mean it feels like we're in a sci-fi movie to me some days. I mean, this level of evil, um, you know, you're, um, you're a person who's found faith and uh, you're, you know, your, your faith in God. And as a Christian, do you feel like there's an attack on Christians in the military or people with moral conviction, even if you take a, a step outside biblical faith or faith in God, uh, attack on morality and attack on Christians with the wokeness that is infiltrating the military as well? Can you speak to that? Uh, yes. And, and I would say uh, in terms of the what we could probably intelligibly put under that umbrella term of like this, this new modern woke political ideology, it, it's kind of subsumed the what we might call the religious instinct or impulse in people because it has a lot of parallels with some kind of a theocratic system. But in this case, you must obey um, the woke policies of the state or big brother, if you will, and to do anything otherwise is the new form of heresy. But when it comes to um, both Christianity in particular, and even just folks that are in general speaking to some sense or some personal moral basis of objective morality, there seems to be a concerted effort to remove that from the forces. And I would argue, um, of course, being unlike my opponents, you might say, being fully open about my bias. Well, I'm, I'm biased about my, my conviction and my faith in Christianity because I believe it's true. Mm -hmm. And part of and so it's it's inherent uh connection to objectivity and moral truths is what makes it so dangerous for these institutions it's also why like in my my studies from history where i in my history degree i i, I took special interest in the history of the soviet union there's a reason why in marxist nihilistic materialist systems they attempt to dismantle older traditional systems especially religion and in particular christianity because it contains within it 
what we might say are the the guideposts and the, and the guiding principles which inherently undermine uh, any sort of system that is rooted in deceptive human authoritarianism and a, and a lack of care or responsibility towards what we might say is capital T objective truths. So when it came to religious accommodations in the forces, some, some folks were, were approved, but uh, most of my peers, especially the ones that I was working closely with on a, on a lot of this, and these are now folks like myself who are out of the military, uh, by and large, if their defense or if their faith in particular was of a Christian background and particularly of one that refuses to compromise on what we would all argue are central and basic and even easily understandable tenets of biblical theology and what what the Bible says about what Christian, like this is across denominational, what it says about certain things has just been utterly dismissed. And this is to the great de detriment of the Canadian forces chaplaincy, because again, like I, I don't have that background except for, of course, from a more secular perspective, actually with my philosophy education, but uh, I'm dealing with, you know, colonels and, and majors and folks much higher up with degrees in theology who went to seminary. And I was just absolutely, frankly, blown away by their willingness to conform again with this ideological possession to various uh, mental gymnastics to, to take the to take the the spirit out of really what what the message of Christianity even is, and for secular folks too listening or people across other backgrounds, I would also argue that something very sinister was taking place in the sense that although a way was opened for folks like myself to submit a religious accommodation request, even before they opened the door the doorway for that process all of us in my regiment and I'm sure across the country were told uh, just so you, you troops know, by the way, don't even bother submitting an argument from personal belief or conscience because we won't even read it or look at it or consider it whatsoever. So oh, for wow. secular folks who have no, I might say they, they don't have anything really to fall back on besides their internal moral ethic or this, maybe it's a secular humanist belief or something along that vein where they at the very least say, I have an inalienable right to act in accordance with my conscience, which I, I would agree with them and I would support them in that, despite the difference in our personal beliefs. And I was concerned deeply about that. And I raised that as an issue as well. Nevertheless, this is something that is totally historically unprecedented in the Canadian forces as an institution that they would just say, by the way, in this new, again, historically unprecedented situation that we've never dealt with or seen before, in this special case, your conscience doesn't matter. And as you can well imagine, and as your viewers can well imagine, this is a drastically awful doorway to open that cannot be easily closed once you open it, where you say, now we as an institution from the top down get to even start walking mm -hmm. through this moral realm of getting to make choices where and when the conscience of our soldiers doesn't matter or won't figure into the calculus of our moral decision making. Right. And you even mentioned uh, beyond the um, spiritual, moral, religious con objections of conscience, you also uh, spoke with soldiers who had medical objections to being injected with an experimental product. Um, and we know those are extremely valid, to say the least, with the 
unbelievable adverse events and and sudden deaths and uh, and sad uh, you know array of cancers coming back. Um, so what is it that you put together? Tell us, tell the audience a little bit about the medical exemptions that you tried uh, to help some of your team with and what happened there. So while while I personally, for my case, all of all of my paperwork and argumentation is fully just in line with the religious side of the arguments, nevertheless, uh, my peer group of, let's say, persecuted individuals who are trying to uh, not only, of course, stand up for ourselves, but show or demonstrate how this this is a concern that should be writ large for the entire institution. One of my peers, another fellow officer in Shiloh compiled a binder several inches thick with uh, everything was highlighted and proper tabs put in and page breaks, table of contents. We really did our due diligence and our homework to provide a professional, uh, what you might say, investigative product for our superiors to send up the chain. And it did end up going all the way to National Defense Headquarters in Ottawa. And in this uh, package we provided to them, it contained hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific journals attesting to things like what you mentioned with the preponderance of adverse reactions, the negative impacts of or or non-efficacious impact of masking populations. Uh, we provided product monographs going from the US, uh, from all of the four major uh, pharmaceutical companies. We provided uh, at least 30 years, going back 30 years of US uh, patent department data including such things as mentions going back roughly a decade or so where the US government patented the original SARS strain, as well as their patenting of uh, the lipid nanoparticle delivery system that has been used in most of these, uh, the, the big four companies, especially because of when it was first devised and sent through the US patent office now roughly 20 years ago, it was classified as a delivery system for a biological weapon. And all of this was compiled, compiled by my peer. And we came to, uh, once again, to our immediate chain of command, letting them know, sir, we believe that this order telling folks to just, just, just do it, just do the thing, just take it, regardless of your personal feelings or any concerns you may have as an individual, uh, just do it anyway. Well, we say this is an unlawful order, manifestly unlawful, and we've provided you with all this information to demonstrate that. And now our immediate superior did not read anything we provided to him and rather just said, well, I believe that this is a lawful order, which makes it easy for me because I don't have to think about it. Oh, uh, unbelievable. I mean, I mean, it's what we're living through is so incredible. And this is being played out on the world stage right now. I know we spoke earlier about the book, um, The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Demas. I've just uh, um, purchased the ebook and the whole concept of mass formation. And I'm just wondering if you would speak to that from your experience, not only, um, you know, during this the COVID narrative, but now afterwards and, and seeing 
how people can be controlled through, um, you know, trauma conditioning, which they're using the fear porn, uh, maybe speak to um, your knowledge of MK ultra systems from a, as a, as a weapon to be used against civilian populations as well. And how, you know, and maybe then we could talk about some solutions afterwards. Right. So uh, just by even mentioning some of these like legacy programs, like MK ultra, it speaks to the, the fact that uh, systems of what we might call like trauma-induced or trauma-based mind control, of course, that, that sounds really scary and it sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, but it's, I think, even more uh, horrifying to know that it's rather science fact instead of science fiction in the sense that studies and developments have been made for many decades, uh, going tracing back to just after the Second World War, at least in the U.S., with respect to um, not only various um, infusions of like drug cocktails, they would use psychedelics or psychoactive drugs, like uh, especially things like LSD, for instance. And yes. uh, and they would m merge that with, like you mentioned, this uh, what it, what has been now become very finely honed systems of fear porn or fear fear inducing propaganda that essentially puts humans in a permanent fight or flight response, even when you're just sort of sitting around doing nothing. And that would actually most likely speak to the overwhelming increase, especially in the last couple of years of uh, like generalized anxiety disorders, mm -hmm. uh, anything that, that again would be further medicalized, anything that would put people on more, more, uh, you might say psychoactive stimulant or depressant drugs to deal with and manage human emotions. Um, because without folks actually realizing it, there's actually a lot of efforts being made uh, through subliminal messaging uh, or outright propaganda to put people into a, a, a psychologically uh, vulnerable state that kind of, kind of begs for a solution either both consciously and subconsciously. And of course, very conveniently, the state then comes in with the answer, be it uh, modification of your personal individual behavior in the form of something that is a, what we could, what we should uh, describe as pointless virtue signaling mm -hmm. or putting you on SSRIs, anxiety medica medications. Um, and you might, if you wanted to really expand that sphere of influence out as much as possible, you could even see it tying in with uh, what is continuing to roll out in terms of the legalization of various drugs. Yes. Um, like uh, not, not just like, well, cannabis of course is one that that's something that again got uh, JT a lot of popularity back in the day to get him into office, but also the viewership should view this as well under the lens of uh, what we might say are the, the bread and circuses distractions of the public and, and things that are being, now actively encouraged for their abilities to keep the largest amount of the population docile and as docile and as complacent as possible while simultaneously being as fraught with anxiety and in a certain paradoxical sense willing to when the right signal is given from again from this new established authority to behave and to conduct themselves in ways that are completely alien to what any of us would have been used to in our previous lives. The easiest way I, I tell people to look at this is imagine, 
imagine just going back in a, in a time machine to the mid nineties, even, and talking to your past self about what life would be like in 2022. And they would, they wouldn't yeah. believe you for a second. They would think that all of this is absolutely insane. Absolutely. And we've all seen people driving uh, in their cars wearing one or even two masks and people used to make fun of them but I actually feel very sad and sorry for those people who have been they have had uh, such an effective dose of this uh, fear porn that this is the way they're living and it's got to be very sad for them and this whole um, masking uh, concept you can speak to it as an emasculation for men in the army I mean and that the abuse I call it it's so abusive for children I mean from a psychology standpoint when you cover your face you know that there's something very uh, dehumanizing about that, as well as the physical uh, element to that, making people do that, which is breathing in these graphene oxide plastic fibers into their lungs and the carbon dioxide buildup as well. So they're actually not clearing viruses, they're doing the exact opposite. So to make people do something that is so unhealthy for them and to do it uh, willingly and proudly, you know, virtue signaling. Can you speak to that um, from your own experience in the forces and um, as, a, as a psychology tactic, war tactic? Right. So, and I, I made this, I made a point of actually discussing it just like this to uh, behind closed doors. I was in, in, in my office with some other junior officers one day, and I told them this same kind of notion where I said, because they were, it was at the time, well, we were all, we had to wear masks. And, and even at, at that regiment that I came from, to this day, I do believe it is still the base commander's discretion. And there are signs up as soon as you go through the front, front gates of the base, even now, telling people that you have to wear masks in all public places on that base, even though there's been no mask mandate or rule in any public place everywhere else in the province for months now. Wow. So it, it, it further speaks to, um, again, psychologically speaking, it's in the back of everybody's mind that's working there. It's like they know, oh, I only have to do this this silly thing that I don't want to do. And I know I, I don't feel or think or believe works, but I have to do it in this one place. And then I go get to go live the rest of my life outside. And you better believe, if not 100%, 99.9% of my former peers there as soon as they get out of work they rip that thing off and it doesn't go back on until they're forced to when they go back to work which increases that demoralization and i told my peers when we were because we were okay. back in our offices the regiment is kind of constructed like a very big it's a huge garage because it's an artillery regiment so the main big floor has all the vehicles and the the big howitzers and the guns and there's a bunch of uh running off hallways of offices behind closed doors. But everybody, if you're working out on that big main floor, that's very visible, of course, everybody kept their masks on, but it, you could see like there was, it was, it was not something that people truly in their heart and mind agreed with or wanted to do because at every opportunity, people would find excuses, of course, not to wear their masks because nobody wants to do it. So when we would be back in our offices away from prying eyes of higher ups or the fellow troops where we have to wear it to like, again, be part of that. So that's another blow to your psyche to feel like you're encouraging other people to do something that you don't even want to be doing personally. But yes. I was with my fellow peers in the office. We weren't wearing masks because 
-hmm. who wants to do that. We don't want to do that. And we're just sitting all in like a circle with our computer chairs. And I said to them, you don't just lie with your mouth. You lie with your body. If you do something with your physical form that that signals non-verbally to others around you, your agreements with something that you don't truly agree with. And when you do that, it's an inherently emasculating act. And if our institution becomes nothing but a bunch of emasculated liars, it will come as no surprise the sort of horrific things that we may be called upon to do and that we may go along with in the future. And to that, I got a lot of knowing and concerning stares, but I'm only, I can only hope now that some of those peers, if they ever hear about this, or if they ever think on it now, after the fact, after folks like myself have, have, uh, been on the other side of the ideological purge, if you will, that it's going to be ringing true in their ears because when you do this, especially with those folks, like you say, we're in a combat arms unit. So when it speaks to our psychology, we are the least risk averse people you might say in our society, because we willingly go towards gunfire and explosions and all that sort of stuff. Like we're, we're supposed to be courageous in the face of, uh, the threat of imminent death, you might even say it's, it's hard to sometimes truly wrap your head around it, even for those of us that are in it. Mm-hmm. But it, it, again, it speaks to this overall, what I would argue is a deliberate attempt to weaken us because it's even gotten to the point when you speak to this emasculation piece um, and it even, it's not just emasculate, like, of course it is directed specifically at emasculating men but also in terms of just harming everybody, men and women in the forces, it's, there's a, just like in the universities, there's an effort at infantilization and not even letting them uh, grow up or grow into the real, the real concerns and challenges you would face in the profession of arms. So namely, I went to on a training course in Borden over, over a year ago, and that was on, it was actually training for chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear events. So all the stuff you do with a gas mask and hazmat suit. And one of the other students on that training course with me was a sergeant who uh, had come from CFLRS, where all of our basic training in the country is run through St. Jean in Quebec. And he said that the new commandant of the basic training school essentially told all of him, all of the actual instructors that they're not to yell at new recruits. Now, never mind. We had changed policy early in the past. You know, you can't be downright verbally abusive and heinous towards new recruits or anybody for that matter, which we would right. readily agree with. That's a good, that is a good positive improvement or culture change, you might say, in the military. But to say that you cannot raise your voice Jeez. to a new recruit, that there, I, if you don't know how that sets us up for failure, I don't think I can help you at this point. And I think even your yes. audience with no experience whatsoever can very easily understand why uh, like we don't like the need for yelling is not just for, for volumes sake. It's actually to, 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 to equip new soldiers with the tools to overcome stressful situations, because if you can't handle somebody raising their voice at you, how are you going to be able to handle bullets whizzing by your head or dealing with casualties next to you? It's so interesting. You say, I mean, I'm a, I'm a martial artist. I studied for 10 years in uh, shoot wrestling and different techniques and um, grappling and jujitsu. And one of the terms ki is, uh, is that powerful cry. 
and that that you know when you when you cry out that's your inner spirit and your inner power and it's very obvious all these techniques are designed not just within the military but within all the general public at large globally is to break your inner spirit um it's psychological torture uh and psychological warfare along with breaking your spirit and breaking your moral conviction so it's whether you have a deep faith in god um, or not whatever across all denominations is to corrupt your you know there's there's so much uh interest in corrupting our morality you look at the issues with pedophilia and the disgusting all of these uh temptations out there uh you know you you, you can all the all the alcohol you can drink uh, liquor stores are open small businesses are closed so it's it's a absolute attack on our convictions so we don't stand up in strength so we don't do the right thing so we we say oh not me i'll just hanker down and hide and watch netflix and um the techniques have been played out over and over throughout history you look at um all of the, all of the communist societies you look at nazi germany where they tried to uh, let anything be okay so this moral ambiguity is what they play on so that you don't have a sense of conviction so you don't say what's right and wrong and you don't stand up w what do you see um is as some of the ways forward um, yourself personally and and you know in in obviously in the military and maybe with some of your efforts with veterans for freedom to move to um out of this this situation this warfare we're in well it, that it's a it's a big question but it's probably the most important one that everybody yes. should be asking themselves because and I, i've tried to spend a lot of time thinking about it from from the, the level of the individual, because mm -hmm. although we are, we are beset with problems that are sometimes a faceless bureaucratic or institutional mishmash nightmare, nevertheless, it seems to be the case again, that the biggest changes that happen, especially for, for the good tend to, they, they require things to start first, of course, at the level of the individual and with people yes, every every single person making making choices and then the the real courage comes in where once you've made a choice that you stay consistent with the choice you've made and stay true to your most deeply held convictions it even speaks to in the military we go through something they call bystander training and it's meant it i think it, it comes from a good place at least in this idea where the way they phrased it you know is uh, the behavior that you're willing to walk past and say nothing about is the behavior that you're willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And they, they're supposed to be, and they do with that training, teach us to not walk past unacceptable behavior or actions or things without calling them out. And similarly, it, while it is all well and good for people in, their, in themselves and in their own psychology or mental state to be aware of a lot of these problems and to know that things are wrong, but I would further argue if, especially if you do care about the future of our society and what kind of society we're going to live in, you, you and I and all of us as, as separate individuals have to recognize we have certain concrete moral and moral responsibilities and duties towards our society to make it mm -hmm. into something that we actually want to live in. And that means, so for my part, the example I give is, uh, well, 
I, I don't, like you've mentioned, for various uh, reasons, I, I, I do not agree with anybody forcing me to wear a mask when I do not want to wear one or believe in wearing one or mm -hmm. see zero efficacy in wearing one. And so since that is my choice, I will, I am choosing not to wear a mask and not to be forced to wear one under any circumstances whatsoever. That being said, you know, I, myself and others, you, if you're going, if you're willing to really do what's right in these regards, you also have to be willing to accept whatever immediate adversity and hardship may come with that. Just like while I was, uh, in a certain sense, stuck in limbo for the past year of my career, I also wasn't allowed to go to any stores, restaurants, even out outdoor mm -hmm. uh, festivals and fairgrounds that were open open air outside. They still wouldn't let folks like me in because I didn't have a vaccine passport. Yes. Nevertheless, I, I assumed all of that, what we might call a burden or hardship on myself. Uh, because again, it is a matter of perspective and folks need to realize that willing to being willing to accept some of this personal hardship in the short term it needs to be worth it in the long run yes I agree. because otherwise we're not going to achieve some of these more society sweeping and changing goals that we have so like my the, my mother has been doing this a lot lately and i think it's a great idea too to to raise the consciousness of people around you is to just ask Ask your friends, your family, your neighbors, people you meet in public at the grocery store, you name it. Even if it doesn't come up naturally in the topic of conversation, you'll, as people do this with more experience, they'll find ways to just make it a part of the conversation where you ask these people, uh, hey, so, you know, if the government tries to return to more mandates and lockdowns and restrictions in the fall or the winter or just sometime in the future, are you going to go along with it and comply? Because I'm never going to comply with any of that stuff again. And yes. just see the kind of response you get from people. Because from my for my part and from uh, my mother reporting back to me, I don't think she's met a single person. Uh, namely, of course, if you're doing this conversation right now with people that are also in public not wearing a mask, mm -hmm. hopefully they're more open to this kind of way of thinking as well. Yes. But uh, unfortunately, some of the folks now that are voluntarily by their own choice wearing two or more masks, they may be fully demoralized and beyond reaching just with a yes. simple conversation. Uh, absolutely. I agree with you. Two points. I know myself at some point I stepped fully into this realizing I would experience enormous hardship, uh, but accepted it. And I haven't looked back and I've seen going against the narrative that it it does take perseverance and even the Bible talks about that, but it has been an unbelievable journey. And, you know, most things I see them coming around in ways that are extremely heartening. I remember early on being chased out of a store because I refused to put on the face covering and I was right at the door and uh, you know, there were, it was wide open. I just threw the money down. The lady pursued me, took a picture of my license and sent the police I dealt with the police calmly, politely, and and turned it around, telling them, "You're lucky I didn't, um, you know, call you about the behavior, aggressive behavior of that merchant." And that was just one of many stories that I was able to turn around successfully. And going against the narrative is something that Mattias uh, Damas speaks about in his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, because even if you don't reach people at a conscious level, planting the seeds uh, 
in their subconscious uh, subconscious stops them from potentially doing harm to others. If, for example, if they bought into their narrative, I know, um, and I'm just looking for my phone, but um, you actually brought up an amazing quote. I think it's a good time to say it from C.S. Lewis about um, how the worst type of enemy, I don't know if you have that handy. Oh, here, let me just see if I can find it. The worst type of enemy is the one um, let me just read this because that was amazing. You spoke about it. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. That's C.S. Lewis. That's just such a great quote for what we're seeing today and why we need to continue to push back. Um, and you might say, like, the reason why sometimes people may ask us, well, how how is it possible that... The, 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 let's say the real forces of malevolence and deception at work here, how were they able to convince so many people in so many various different positions of institutional power to willingly go along with something that is not in the best interest of the people? And well, that's actually, it's an easy answer. It's because they've, they actually have managed to convince a lot of these, what we might call midwits and useful idiots to the revolution They've convinced them of the moral authority and, and eternal goodness of the things that they're doing. And mm -hmm. that it, they it's the most pernicious, you might say, aspect of it that they mm -hmm. that they they have really pulled the wool over a lot of those folks eyes to this idea that what they're doing is for our own good. And mm -hmm. even even those folks like uh, especially those involved in global and international systems like the World Economic Forum, even if, and this is something your viewers, anybody can go look at their conferences and like these are public televised things where they're speaking. The sort of language they use, of course, is always couched in this kind of vocabulary of the best interest for the most people. We're looking to to help everybody, to raise up the, the, the poor and the downtrodden. These are all, these platitudes or talking points, if you will, they, they sound good on paper, but but the real proof is in the practice and, and they say, well, you know, we got to save the world. And the only way we can do that, though, however, is to radically curtail the individual freedoms of people. And because I'm so much better and more educated and more enlightened than you peasants, mm -hmm. uh, you just continue to busy yourself with the Netflix and the, and the drugs and the pointless entertainment while I radically restructure society around you. And hopefully you don't notice while I'm doing it. And exactly. And I've had uh, a number of guests on to talk about the dark agenda for Agenda 2030 under the guise of sustainability. And I do um, believe that's going to be one of their next plays in this battle is uh, climate alarmism and, and forcing people to do things against their will. For example, eat crickets, which have a known uh, cancer causing property in their exoskeleton um, and, you know, eliminate ourselves from from nature, um, even with these small 
uh, measures they're taking to limit human contact with nature. So what do you think's next in there in this war? And of course, we know about the next six months, which could be very difficult with the food shortages and all of the man-made droughts and things like that. What, where, where do you see this going next? This, this is why we are in a difficult time, mainly because it's hard to predict how effective some of these moves and plans are, are going to be. And similarly, it's hard to predict the level to which there will be, let's say, a, a global populist response to some of these problems. But we're already beginning to see on a smaller scale some, some indications of what that might look like. So, for instance, part of the reason why there's so much turmoil and upheaval in places right now like Sri Lanka is because they've actually already pushed much further into the climate agenda and the, the green deals that they're trying to get the ball rolling on in places like here and with the Dutch farmers. So that's that's why, again, we're, we as uh, other, other countries should be looking to that example saying, okay, they tried this already in Sri Lanka. It's been absolutely disastrous. And it led to essentially the tr in the truest sense of the term, a grassroots populist uprising that just completely ousted the ruling political classes. And we could very well see something similar across other parts of the Western world. And our ability to judge the, the level of that response and where and when it may happen should kind of directly correlate with unfortunately it's 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 a one-to-one -one comparison with how awful and how injurious those policies happen to be so for instance like you mentioned for us in canada with um with these uh, the, like the new climate climate police for lack of a better term and their 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 uh nice. infrastructure they're building in, in winnipeg and and the um the already with the the, the trespassing on uh, Saskatchewan farmlands to take nitrate levels uh, by some of those government agents, that's just signaling the beginning of some of these moves. And if we, we if we are to truly we the farmers, I mean in Canada, truly are to lose or be forced to lose up to upwards of 30% of their fertilizer, that will not result in a direct one to one like lose 30% fertilizer, lose 30% crops. It's going to be exponentially worse than that, and even speaking again to like we, we oftentimes talk about the various levels to which people are awake, if you will, or aware of what's happening. Well, it's not going to be so easily ignorable, even for maybe we'll say the 60 to 80 percent middle ground of society when they mm -hmm. finally, as a matter of course, for their survival, they can no longer keep these thoughts pushed way off into the background. And that could very well be as early as this fall, uh, this fall into the winter time. As you can notice, in terms of timing, it's it's all very well coinciding, namely with like uh, the the political instability that's already in the United States, but it's going to be drastically uh, worsened, you might say, by the uh, time of the midterms, which is early November yes. this year. And then for us again, locally here at home, again, I, I I don't know exactly what is going to be revealed, but we because folks like ourselves have been trying to we've been trying to keep our, our eyes and our attention focused in the right places. So we, we have some general sense of what's going to be levied, let's say in terms of the legal arguments that are coming at the public inquiry for the invocation yes. of the emergency act on September 19th. 
I believe it goes actually from September 19th till almost the end of October. And that's actually an incredibly long amount of time for something yeah. to be live, publicly televised with represent representatives from both, not just the convoy, but like uh, Tom Marazzo spoke about last week, the legal representation coming out from Western Canada, uh, the kind of arguments that they are going to be, again, publicly airing, even yeah. if it falls on deaf ears by those that don't want to hear it, which we can, again, readily imagine or anticipate. Yes. They they won't, they, that they being the malevolent actors or the bad faith actors institutionally won't be able to keep that, put that cat back in the bag once it's out. And, right. and the, the real fallout we're going to see in terms of the political fallout and maybe the, the resurgence or emergence of another grassroots populist movement in Canada could very well directly spring forth out of the kind of revelations that come at this inquiry where yes. once again, what's what's really, I think, the some of the final nails in the coffin, let's say, for the narrative that it's going to speak to is the fact that uh, the, the rights and freedoms of Canadians were in a completely historically unprecedented way, drastically and violated, uh, un violated and curtailed un unethically, and they were done so with not one iota of proper justification justification yes. whatsoever one of the biggest ones namely of course being uh that there was a a big threat from the supposed terror group diagonal which i i can say on also quite good authority that i because i was like many soldiers and again this is something that the audience might not know that for the vast majority of the convoy in ottawa in combat arms bases, at least across the country, all the soldiers were told to work from home for mm -hmm. weeks. So they were staying at home in January and into February, not wow. going into work, not talking to one another. Again, probably because they didn't want the regular people, the rank and file soldiers to be face to face discussing with one another how how angered they were, frankly, by the, yes. the, the actions of their own government. And uh, they they will they will demonstrate through through these legal arguments that when i was seeing during again during that long extended christmas vacation if you will that i watched the memes about diagonal being created in real time so as folks were making joke images on the internet they mm -hmm. were even discussing in online forums like wouldn't this be funny uh it would be hilarious if members of parliament actually thought this was real and lo and behold when they were uh, ringing the alarm bells and trying to, again, increase the fear mongering among the public. We had MPs in the House of, of Government uh -huh. saying that there's this new threat, essentially uh -huh. trying to characterize it as the new ISIS or something to that oh, matter. Geez. And it's literally just some spicy memes that somebody made on oh, Facebook. Oh, I know Jeremy McKenzie speaks to that. I know that uh, Brian Peckford and Maxine Bernier have a legal challenge on our mobility rights for all those who declined the experimental shot and couldn't travel. So that's also coming this fall. Um, I've actually even heard, and you never know what's true and what's not, but I'm just throwing it out there as well that the this is huge news if it is true that the u.s election will be decertified uh because it was fraudulent now and there is uh, several big podcasters who say that it's already been overturned if that happens all hell breaks loose and uh, has to happen before uh, i think there's a date in the fall october 20th or something like that so we have a lot of things that are 
actually coming down in Canada, um, maybe coming down in the US, but definitely with the midterms um, and with all of the move to make a lot of these states red. So even um, Democrats uh, I know have have been disgusted with the party. So I think there's a move away from that. Um, I think uh, Biden's ratings are at an all time low. We can't really speak to the reality of some of these things that are happening. But I mean, we have the Mar-a-Lago raid, um, which I think was a false flag because um, I, I'm, I think, you know, there's stories within stories. A part of war is the art of deception, as you know, in a military. So I think there's a lot of deceptive tactics going on on both sides. So who knows uh, what's going to happen with that? I've heard different stories. So, I mean, certainly the U.S. is, I believe, pivotal in this war, uh, a global war, and helping kind of free humanity from this vice grip of tyranny. Um, any other thoughts to end the show? I mean, it's been amazing listening to you and hearing your story. I applaud you for your conviction and courage, James, and you've continued now to work with Veterans for Freedom. Anything you want to mention about your work now, what you're doing, or anything to hearten people? I think uh, I spoke, unfortunately, my PowerPoint was stalling on me on the Monday, but I think the importance of getting out of your head, not only from a, uh, from a war tactic standpoint, because our amygdalas have been hijacked, the way our brains physically function, um, so you got to move into your heart heart, um, heart-centered, um, you know, heart-centered leadership. Also, uh, heart is the place of courage. It's very hard to be courageous if you're stuck in your head because your thoughts sometimes deceive you. It's easiest for to get judgmental, to get fearful. When we move down into our bodies, release the stress from the fear porn and live in our heart, we can start to live by our convictions and our minds can deceive us whether MKUltra is true, the mind control I've read about our thoughts aren't always truthful. So listen with your heart, act courageously is what I say. What do you want to say to uh, Canadians and international people who are listening today? It seems like the forces of malevolence and deception, not just in our country, but around the world, they are clearly motivated from uh, dark places, um, what I might say, are spiritual wickedness in high places, and from yes. hatred, and and this ha this hatred uh, of all life, actually, of, of all, all life, it's antinatalism against the family and the nuclear family. But it's it's actually it's it's directly in contradiction, and it is it is it's actually quite amazing how easily uh, what we might say are the the other side of the coin directly challenges this thing so things like truth and love and like you say speaking from the heart there's a reason why jesus said a man hath no greater love than this that he lays life down for his friends and when when you really believe when you really truly incorporate that into yourself and you believe it more than you believe that the sun will rise tomorrow that level of conviction and motivation is impossible to destroy uh like even I'm so fully into this, of course, because I believed in signing on the dotted line. I believed in the reasons for my vocation and joining the profession of arms. But I'm no different than the person right next to me working there or now just in the in public. We're all just human beings. We're all people. And that's what people need to realize. There's nothing inherently 
amazing or courageous or wonderful about me in particular. I'm just a guy, but that's what it, that's the, that's what people need to realize is that all, even all the folks that have been worthy of the highest honors in our society and in our history for bravery and courage, they were just people like you and me who did the right thing at the right time. And they refused to compromise on their beliefs. They refused to surrender, to give in. And people need to realize that every single one of us is our own locus or, or focal, focal point for spreading the right kinds of ideas and ideals and messages into the world. And this happens, it can happen on a daily basis and you can never even know truly on your own personal level, the impact that you're going, you and I and everyone is going to have as an individual, just from that simple fact of like for the case being when if you get told you have to wear a mask in a grocery store and and just refusing to to bow to the whims of petty authoritarians who despise you mm -hmm. and doing it, it will embolden others and going with groups of friends who will not, again, do things that violate their conscience and are things that they detest, morally speaking. And a good example of this, actually, if folks aren't familiar with the Milgram experiments from decades ago, they were testing humans' capacity for... Uh, how much people would obey an authority figure. So they had a guy in a lab coat with a clipboard telling the test subjects to keep raising the dial on a, on a device that would electrocute another patient for getting answers wrong on a questionnaire. Yes, and most yeah. of the people would dial it all the way up well past lethal levels of, of electric shocks just because somebody in a, in a white coat and a clipboard said so. And the thing is that was very effective this is something that folks should realize from that experiment. It was super effective at getting a lot of people to do potentially murderous acts by blindly following authority, but it only really worked and it was only super effective when they kept all of the test subjects isolated and alone and away from each other. Oh, what really? a lot of people don't, what a lot of people don't know about the Milgram experiments is that when they had, uh, I don't have the numbers correct here exactly, but still the general statistics are true when they had, let's say, a group of 10 people together that were the test subjects and they were all in the same waiting room and just one out of the 10 people said, hey, I'm not going to do that. This is wrong. You're hurting these people. This isn't mm -hmm. right. And when the other people in the group saw one person standing up and saying no, over 80% of the others were emboldened to also say no wow. and to not go along with something that they knew in their heart and their mind to be wrong. Oh, and wow. the same thing is going to happen in our society. All, they, all that these other people need to see is the growing, and, and I do strongly mm -hmm. believe that it is growing, this sense of courage that's just inborn and innate in people. They need to know that courage is not always just running into the thick of battle. You might be in a spiritual mm -hmm. or a psycho psychological battle in your own personal life at the checkout counter at a store, as it may yes. happen to be the case. And that's you your battleground. No, it, yeah. That's where it happens. And it's going to happen for every single individual. And pretty soon, if I, if I may be optimistic, which it's really hard to see, even now, despite all the things that have happened, it's hard for me to shake my optimism in the sense that I, I really have to believe just like I believe in myself and my own capacity to not give in. Mm -hmm. I believe so much in the capacity for other people to not give in and to be the encouragement that others need to see in their personal lives to also stand firm to what they believe in.
That's beautiful, James. I concur a hundred percent. And I've seen the the pushing initially for me, maybe almost not two years, but over a year and a half was very, very difficult, but it gets easier and easier to stand up and more and more people are doing the same. So um, that's, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for appearing um, today and you continue to work with Veterans for Freedom, veteransforfreedom.com. If anyone wants to donate or help that amazing organization i've met so many people um some who i consider friends now from that organization so thank you and uh, we'll definitely speak again um so thanks for your time thank you so much